All right, everyone, come on in. That's a personal question. Come on in. <laughs> this is now a time in the conference where we get to just sort of chat pretty impromptu. Um, again, we, as we as elders were thinking through the conference and the theme, uh, there's been a lot written and blogged about as far as gospel centrism and the radical nature of the call of Christ to follow him. And we kind of wanted to hit those themes and just ask our uh, speakers that are here with us uh, questions relating to, um, to those themes. So this time around, we want to we look at that idea of gospel centrism. A lot of people have a different definition of what the gospel actually is, how much is in there, how much isn't, what that looks like. And uh, we want to sort of ask some questions uh, surrounding that. So we have three questions that were uh, submitted in the box, and then we're going to start, uh, we can take some questions from the floor via text message. So Curtis, if you want to hit um, that next slide back there. And then once again. <laughs> and one more time. <laughs> nope, too far. All right, stick to the car. Good man. <laughs> the top cell phone number is mine, uh, so be kind. Um, but if you do have a mobile device and you want to text in a question just as the conversation gets rolling, uh, feel free to do so, and uh, we'll get things started. So, Steve, maybe you want to start us off and just kind of get the ball rolling, and then we'll go from there. If you have your conference booklet, you'll notice that the panel discussion says that we're going to talk about the idea of legalism versus license and the idea of, uh, sorry, license and grace, making sense of the new emphasis on gospel centralism. So what I w thought we'd do, maybe if you guys could just, what do you think even that means? Um, get that rolling, and then as a follow-up question to get the ball rolling, with the idea of the new restless, young restless and reform, the, the doctrines of grace, this idea of being Christ-centered, gospel-centered that we're seeing in light of a lot of books lately, and a lot of them are in the bookstore that we have, what are you most encouraged by these, this movement, like things like T4G and TGC and, and all these things that seem to be wanting to knock down barriers and, and get things focused on the essentials of the faith? What are you most excited by, and, and are there red flags? Are there things that discourage you? Are you, are you like, hey, guys, be, 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 be afraid? So maybe first, what do, you, what do you think this means? Or if someone walked up and said, answer that, what, what would you say? And then maybe what, what are you most hopeful for? What are you most fearful of in this, this time here as in Canada, the United States, but primarily even in Canada? Maybe, Mike, I'll start with you. Can you read the, uh, read the topic just one more time? So legalism, license, and grace, making sense of the new emphasis on gospel centralism. Yeah. All right, so when I hear that, um, what comes to mind uh, with these categories are you know, at the risk of oversimplification, the two major tendencies of the human heart, um, both of them driven by self. You've got kind of self-achievement on the one side and you've got self-indulgence on the other side. And again, at the risk of oversimplification, I think exemplified in the parable of the, what we talk of as the parable of the prodigal son, really the parable of the father, with um, this tendency towards um, self-sufficiency 
on the big brother and the tendency towards self-indulgence. And these are the tendencies of every one of our hearts. And when I hear gospel centrism, I think about the gospel rightly understood, the, go the gospel rightly operating in the life of the church and the, in the life of the believer being the one antidote, if you will, the one solution to both of those problems of the human heart. So I've just always been helped by the image that's so predominant, especially in the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, though, of the path. There is this path that God has called us to walk, and it's possible to fall off on either side, and we can fall off into legalism so easily. We can fall off into license, and uh, we'll get to, to the particular dangers of that when we get to the second part of your question, Steve. But the thing that rescues us from both of those is Christ and uh, the right understanding of the good news of Jesus. So simple, that's what comes in my mind when I read a, a phrase like that. Good stuff. Dan? Uh, when I think of gospel centrism, I think um, growing up in the church, you know, I was, I was saved at a young age, like four or something like that, from a life of terrible sin of, you know, <laughs> sliding down banisters and, you know. <laughs> whatever, not eating my food or whatever. Um, but I, I kind of viewed the gospel growing up as that thing that the pastor does at the end for those unsaved people who need it. Because I was well past that. I already know the gospel. Let's go on to other things. And I think the gospel-centered movement has really reawakened me to my own need for the gospel every day. Like, it's not, you don't get over the gospel. Like, you, you the more you dive into it, the more you you know, you, you have a fresh uh, awakening and a fresh appreciation for Christ, and you realize your need for it just as, as much as you need the gospel um, to get saved. You, you need it uh, as much to live for Christ, and I need it every day. So I, that's what I think of when I think of that phrase. Okay. Paul? Yeah, I don't know that I would add a whole lot more other than it does seem that, like all things in the Christian life, we tend to as Mike said, gravitate one to the other. And that is clearly true in the gospel-centered movement. I'm wary of anything that's a movement. Um, they all seem to end up in the same place eventually. So I, I guess if I would only add a little bit, it would be just how easy it is for phrases to be attached with um, things that they were never intended to include. And I think maybe that would be caught up in your title. Okay. What, what encourages you? What are you encouraged by and discouraged by with this with the state of the church, the gospel, this idea of gospel centrality, you know, again, these are phrases that we, and I just wonder sometimes we're tossing these things around, do we even know what we're talking about? Right. Yeah, let me start with the negative side if I can, so I can end positive. Um, the, the things that concern me at this point, I, I would say, Paul just made reference to this a moment ago, it's so easy to use the language and think that we know what, what we're talking about. And so, um, even in our churches, I'm very wary of even using phrases that I've used for a while, functional centrality of the gospel, and all of a sudden this becomes a password. Uh, so our care group leaders now speak about the functional centrality of the gospel, and everyone in the care groups kind of look at it, and I'm like, we have no idea what you mean, but we know that's important to believe that, and so we'll nod our heads. And so it just becomes a new jargon, and that can happen. I remember one of the most helpful moments for me, I was just starting to teach on this topic and bless his heart a guy came up afterwards after I'm talking about the functional centrality of the gospel and how important it is for church life and pastoral life and he just came up with this kind of 
almost sad look on his face and said, isn't it Jesus? Isn't it, isn't it Jesus? And of course, the answer is yes. And so we have to regularly remind ourselves and the people of the church that the gospel is just the Bible's shorthand way of speaking about the good news about Jesus. Let's not lose sight of that in all of our language. So one of my concerns can be that the language can overtake the reality. A second concern, and Steve, you, you made mention of this a little bit, was I can be concerned that in our attempt to define, and as soon as we use language, we got to define it, that it can be reductionistic. And all of a sudden, the gospel now, we fight over what, what's in the gospel. And the tendency is to be reductionistic. The gospel is the good news, all of the good news. And we have to be careful, not just crucifixion, oh, let's add the resurrection. Let's make sure we get the resurrection in there. But I would argue, you've got to go all the way to consummation. The gospel doesn't do us any good if it doesn't achieve its end. So it's all the good news, and so that tendency towards reductionism can be a little. Now, those are more objective concerns. I have a more pastoral subjective concern, and it kind of gets at the title here, this whole legalism license thing, because I tell you the movement is just um, so encouraging, liberating a lot of people from legalism, but there's this other specter of gospel-liberated people enjoying their freedom in Christ, and all of a sudden it, it becomes, as Paul warns us in Galatians, you know, a cloak for something else. And I can have a little bit of a pastoral subjective concern right now about is there a little bit of, of, of veering in that direction mm -hmm. in terms of our practice and our exercise of our freedom? Mm -hmm. I think we'll get to that more fully. Sure. That, um, was, all, that was all negative. I'll okay. get back to positive. Okay. I'm, I'm only 35, so I don't know if I'm old enough to say, like, what concerns me and all that. But um, what I would say is this. I, I have found um, the, whatever you want to call it, the gospel-centered movement or young wrestlers reformed, very refreshing for me. Um, my first, I went to the Gospel Coalition in 2011. And I was just really encouraged, blown away, really, to see thousands of young people fired up about preaching about the gospel, about doing serious ministry, and uh, that's what excites me. I think, I think the gospel-centered movement, the young restless reform, is really helping to call the church back to substantive preaching, expository preaching, gospel-centered ministry, um, away from legalism. So I think that's such a good, good thing. I, I think that the one concern I might have is just that we don't have like sort of a tribalism, you know, like kind of like you're one of the good guys because you're saying the right coded words or or as if I think some of us young guys tend to think that we have finally nailed it in our generation, you know, like we finally got the right balance without realizing that in 20 years they're going to be saying the same things about us, you know. So I think we have to be careful of some of the hubris that we might have and just be real humble. And also to recognize that God is working in other streams and other movements besides our little tribe. So, so that's what concerns me. But I'm, I'm generally encouraged just by the pulse of the movement and um, th just uniting around orthodoxy and nothing else, uniting around the gospel as, as being the center. I think that for me it's very, very refreshing. Maybe I'll approach the question kind of pastorally, and um, 
I'm thinking of a young woman in my church who uh, grew up in the projects and um, her boyfriend murdered her best friend's boyfriend. Suddenly her entire life fell apart. And in desperation, she typed something in Google about God, ended up listening to, I think, a Piper sermon, went from there to an R.C. Sproul sermon, went to there to a Keller sermon, got a hold of MacArthur, listened to Paul Washer and the shocking youth message. And um, the Lord's radically saved her, and she shows up at our church, and, and I'm saying, and she you know, says, I'm a new Christian. I said, well, you know, tell me about the gospel. What do you understand? She goes, well, I know about total depravity. I'm totally lost in my sins. Everything I've done, nothing I can do to earn salvation from God. His grace is sufficient for me, and his electing grace set upon me before the foundation of the world. And she's just, this is all she knows. And, and, and I'm thinking, wow, that took me till I was like 30. <laughs> and I went to seminary. Um, and she really understands it. Like, she's getting the categories. And, and that's what I'm most thankful for in the movement is that lots of young people in my church that are being awakened to the true gospel and have just exploding hearts of love and gratitude for God for what he's done for them in Christ. Attached to that is my concern. And it's, it's not unique to this generation, but... Sometimes when you grab hold of truth, you begin to think that's all the truth there is. And, and so you, I'm thinking again pastorally of you know, a young man who comes into my church and can dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but in the meantime, he's living in his mom's basement playing video games in his underwear all week, and uh, he you know, can't keep a job, he doesn't go to school, he doesn't, like just basic life stuff that he's, he's completely behind on. And obviously, the gospel has not impacted that part of his life yet. But here's where my concern lies is you, you put him in a conference and he would look great. He could say all the right stuff and that's where it gets to the jargon and stuff and I think, well, wait a second here. We need to talk about how to really live the gospel in your own life. It's funny because one of the questions I was texted, a very frank one, which you guys, both of you guys hit on, I think you were headed towards, Mike, how would you address the newly reformed whippersnappers? who are, in quotation, hell-bent on obnoxiously vocal that they're right and everyone else is wrong, forgetting the grace that they're all fired up over. Mm. Would that kind of connect with some of your concerns? Have, and is, is this someone, like, in love, would we say, you see that, none of us do? Or are we seeing this? Like, is this a true... I, I think there, there are people like that probably in every movement. I, I think, I hear a lot of people talking about angry Calvinists, you know? And I heard it growing up because we were very, very anti-Calvinist. But I have not met many that fit that caricature. So I think we have to be careful about disparaging a whole movement based on a couple. Look, there's jerks in every movement. <laughs> Let's just be real here. There's, there's, I've met some very, very angry Calvinists who fit that. I've met some very angry anti-Calvinists. So I've met some angry Methodists and angry Mennonites and angry Catholics and angry, yeah. Right, so most of them are probably, probably blogging in their mom's basement in their underwear, you know. But, but um, that I, most people I meet are not that caricature, and they're, they're good people, and, and so I, I don't know. Mike or Paul? Well, I, I agree with what you're saying, Daniel, and I think 
it's not unique to the young, restless, reform thing. I, I cringe every, I feel like it's a soap opera. Uh, I just don't like that title. But I, I don't think it's unique to this age. It's not unique to this awakening, if this is what it is. Uh, and I understand it. People get a hold of truth, and they're eager for it. And they're young. And, and when, you, I, when I look back on my life and think of decisions I made, think about the time I took my father-in-law out to breakfast to tell him I'd never go to his church because I hated Calvinism. <laughs> And, um, you know, he didn't write me off. He just was patient and bought breakfast. Um, and that was part of the love that won me over to be open-minded to that particular, um, to that theology. So I think that's the antidote, I guess, is people need to be shepherded. And if there's an angry Calvinist in your church, he needs an, an older Calvinist or an older Arminian to put his arm around him and say, let's talk about the ethical commands of the scripture, which include a lot about love. And clearly, there's a love problem. Do mm. you want to add anything to that, Mike? Yeah, I think that just maybe in a summary way, I would say that despite the fact that there is these possible excesses, these possible concerns, um, I, would, I would much rather try to deal with those concerns and see the effect of what we're re referring to as a, a renewed understanding and emphasis on the gospel because I think that, that what these guys have said is right. You can bring pastoral care over time patiently to these, but what God is doing, again, not to set this up as some unique thing that God is doing, but what, what it appears God has been doing uh, among those that are being affected by this movement um, is something I, I just rejoice over and wouldn't, really wouldn't, wouldn't trade to protect ourselves from the potential dangers. Yeah. We had a question come in. Uh, how do we seek to balance gospel-centered passing on our faith with our desire to see good soldiers of Jesus Christ? Particularly, how do you select people to pass on your knowledge and wisdom? What are you looking for? I think the heart of the question then is, if we're called to disciple, how do we, how do we go about doing that? And especially as pastors, if we're raising up other pastors and elders to take our places, what, what character qualities are we kind of looking for? In order to in order to do that, Second Timothy two two, I guess. How, do, how does that look, what does that look like? Yeah, and maybe before we go to the specific answer to your question of character qualities, it would probably bear saying that um, essential to your faithful gospel ministry is the raising up of the next generation. You can't be doing faithful gospel ministry without. I think that's what Second Timothy two two tells us. Here's Paul saying. Entrust, uh, guard the gospel, do gospel ministry, and in that very context, he's saying part of doing faithful gospel ministry is making sure you guard the gospel by entrusting it to the next generation of, of guys. So I think that's a message that we all need to hear over and over again, and we all need to be speaking. It's not just us getting up and preaching faithfully the gospel, essential to, in order for us to, st to stand before God at the, end of the, at the end of the day and hear, well done, there needs to be included in your gospel ministry some of this entrusting as well. So, I, I mean, the short answer to the, the, the question itself is, yeah, it's right there in the Bible. What are you looking for? Um, there, there is a character of a guy that that's the first thing that we're looking for. Gifting is necessary. It's part of the equation. But the first thing that we're looking for, obviously apart from, from the basics of a commitment to Christ, is a set of character qualities um, and I would say chief among them that we look for is this thing called humility, teachability. Is, is, the, is the man receptive to, 
um, teaching. So, Dan. Um, I, I think I've gotten really convicted in the last couple of years, actually, about doing this. Um, and I think, you know, Mark Dever, in his book, Deliberate Church, um, talks about, as a pastor, you know, just one-on-one -on -one discipleship environments, and also, as a pastor, trying to match people together, too, because you can't disciple everybody, and trying to find people to put together, and so I try to do that, um, and I, I think you can only disciple people who want to be as well. I've learned that the hard way. Um, you just, people who are hungry, I, I think I look for, um, I've, I've got three college guys that I'm I'm discipling right now that are really hungry, really excited, and uh, I'm very excited about doing that. But it just takes time, I think, for me, and you know, going out for coffee, phone conversations, and uh, things like that, even if I'm not training them to be in full-time ministry, per se, but just trying to train these men to be good Christian men, whether they're in ministry or whether they're in, uh, you know, in, you know, vocational work, and they're going to be elders or 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 deacons or something like that, just to, to train them that way. So that that's kind of worked for me, and I'm I'm still trying to figure out my process a little bit of how to do that. So, can I caveat though? <clears throat> I was raised in a world similar to yours, Dan, as we've talked, and, and a lot of the the gospel was presented propositionally to people that needed to get saved, and not talked about to anybody else. Invitation, but often I would hear have pastors. You know, if you sense God's calling you to the mission field, if you sense God's call to ministry, you need to come forward and talk to us. And, of course, I'm not necessarily saying I'm a fan of that, but I almost feel like we've gone to the other way where nobody talks about it. And you're, you're raising up guys and you never say, so do you think, you know, I see a gifting in you. I see potential. Is there a balance to be struck where we, we need to start? You know, I, these missionaries, if you talk to Frank and, and Martin and others, we've had a missions update at our church here last Sunday, and... The mission fields are drying up. There's not people going to the field as much. And is it because as pastors, elders, ministry leaders, we've gone again from one extreme to the other, from what was almost manipulated full-time gospel service, to now we just avoid the subject. And we just hope everybody's a good Christian versus really challenging, you know, I, I really see God's hand on your life. You, you need to really pray about this. Is God calling you to this? I'm so glad you brought that up, Steve, because I think as pastors, and, and whether we're, you know, whatever role we're in, some form of pastoral ministry, I think you need to be watching at each level um, of, I'm thinking about the young men in our church. There's a young guy in our church, well, he's a little older now, because when we first, he was 10 years old, and there was in him a distinctive interest that was detectable. And I thought, God, I don't know what you have here, but I'm paying attention to that. Here's now a high school student. Um, something, and it's not so much even his gifting as it is his hunger, this point that you're making, Daniel, that you're, up, you're paying attention to and now beginning to pray. God, would you raise up and would you help me to see so that I can pay particular attention? Not so much I'm going to meet with him every week now, but I'm watching. I'm watching and hopefully able to discern over time so that by the time a guy's 22... There is this ability to say, I see something in you. Have you thought about? Um, so at, at all of these different stages, I think you need to be watching young mm -hmm. men from as early as 10 years old and see if there are things about them that catch your eye. Yeah, I'm so happy you said that. I wanted to say that, but you said it first. Uh, no, I wouldn't have said it better. But I, uh, Stuart Alliott, I heard him say that years ago, and it was one of those little nuggets of advice that I've 
also just been amazed by you, these little little boys, and you can you can see in some of them. I'm not always right, but you can see. And you think if you're a pastor in one place for 25 years, if he's if you're spotting that when he's 10 years old, he's going to be 35 someday, and you could still be there. And if you've been investing in him over that long term with a in certain intentionality, not putting the pressure on, uh, but just investing in those relationships, it's great. And then I, I do think there's a place. Um, recently, I pulled a young man aside and just said, boy, as we had prayed about it as elders, and we just felt like there was a unique gifting on that brother. And we sat him down and said, you know, if there's, is that interest in your heart? Because we see it. His answer was no, which was a sad disappointment to me. Um, but I'm, I have no qualms about approaching. Um, I have no qualms about if a, someone approaches us in like fashion saying, boy, we don't see it. And I don't know if you guys, I'm sort of interested, you guys talked about uh, humility. I think really high on my list when I'm looking for men to train is faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I kind of see those as similar, but a little bit distinct too. Would you agree with that? Just you want to see a guy faithful in ministry doing yeah, it's the same principle that we see in the elder qualifications. You want not a young convert. You want demonstrated faithfulness over time, so fruitfulness over time. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention that faithfulness is so, so key, not just for spotlighting, you know, future pastors and missionaries, but for for leaders and everything in our church. I've learned the hard way that you can't, like, you really need to observe and see what people are already doing. And guys that that are already faithful and especially for a young man if he's in his you know 20 or you know, early 20s or something and if he's faithful in that point that is really countercultural right. you know especially if he's single or something and he's and he's still faithful and he's still coming to me that's a really good mark of of someone that God can really use take things in a slightly different direction what does gospel centered church discipline look like how do we bring the truth in love with a concern for righteousness as well as grace and humility? And then sort of a corollary question. Do we have a responsibility for discipline in the lives of believers who are not directly members of our church, i.e. relatives, friends, those attending but not formal members? So church discipline, what is the, what is, how, do, how does that, what does that look like? Um, balancing love and righteousness. And then secondarily, what responsibility do we as pastors have to those who are not formerly a, a member of our flock? I like it better when you go first. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say uh, where better does the gospel shine than in discipline um, to remember that potentially this is a straying sheep for whom Christ has laid down his life and his own blood. And so I, I have this wonderful opportunity to call him, call him back to the Savior who purchased him. Um, and it's also a picture of judgment, right? And the judgment that awaits the one who um, is going to, in essence, take his sins upon himself. I would understand church discipline in its final form to be the church saying, we no longer believe that you are a Christian. Um, and so if we reach that stage, it's, it's a, it's a profound statement um, to make about another human being. So I think the gospel is right there in the heart of it, and obviously the gospel would inform how we speak and our hopefulness in the midst of it and our patience and endurance as we wait for someone to, um, Lord willing, turn back to his Lord. Uh, 
Um, again, it, it helps me to think kind of in categories. I think gospel-centered church discipline is going to be gospel-centered in its purpose. It's the purpose of this. It's a rescue operation. Um, it's motivated by love. So really, if, if there isn't an underlying conviction that this really is for the good of the person who's receiving, I don't know how you're going to exercise gospel-centered church discipline. If, if there's not a conviction that it's better for that person to be in the circle of blessing, if you will, and by that I don't mean just the church, I mean in the circle of God's blessing, which hopefully is pretty coterminous with the church. And um, So if, if you don't believe that, then you're not going to do church discipline in a gospel-centered, redemptive, rescue-type way. A second category for me has to do with the, the, the personal character of those exercising the discipline. If gospel doesn't show up there, and the way that it shows up there is through a sober recognition, there but for the grace of God go I. Um, and so Paul says ever so clearly, you be gentle. Go in a spirit of gentleness. You don't go with a high heart or a high hand and recognize that you too could fall and stumble just as this brother or sister has fallen. So when I think about gospel being brought to bear on discipline, those are the two categories for me. Purpose, why are we doing this? It's a gospel-driven purpose, and gospel changed people doing it, and that ought to show up. It ought to be the experience of the person on the receiving end of discipline. Even though they might not say it, they might, they might be in such a state that they don't even recognize it, it should be the experience of the person receiving that they are, they are confronted with the reality of the grace of Christ being meted out through the church. So, Really, uh, I've learned much from reading Mark Dever and his point that church discipline, we, we always think of it as like the final thing. But really, all of us are supposed to discipline each other. And, you know, it says to prov Hebrews were to provoke one another to good works. And so that in, in itself is discipline. And the idea is just to live in community so that um, we're helping each other repent and, and, you know, grow in the grace of God. And, and so I think it has to, the final act has got to be obviously done, you know, as a, as a, leadership team, you know, not just one person doing it, um, you know, making that decision and also just done like Mike said with the idea of restoring somebody, um, not because it's a personal vendetta or someone's hacked off or, or even because maybe they made the, or they questioned the organization or the church or something like that. So it, it, it seems to me the final act is a sword that has to be wielded very, very carefully and, and, and gracefully. So here's, here's a challenging question for us that we ask as elders at our church. If your discipline is gospel-centered, you would hope that over a period of time it would be effective at least once or twice. And as I look at our 15 years, thank God we have two experiences of effective, talking now about this final stage of church discipline, in the face of, sadly, about six or eight that have to date not been effective. But if the record was all, if I can say it this way, losses, well, you would wonder. You'd be, it, it could begin to test your faith as a pastor in this process. Are we doing it right? Um, so I'm just grateful that there is, that there is uh, at least one or two in our brief history as a church where you can point to and say, look at what the gospel brought about. 
So we, we've framed almost all these questions in terms of eldership, and we've talked a lot about males, but there's female, males, like the follow-up question or the, the secondary, you know, where does the scope of this influence end? So, you know, do I have accountability to confront friends, relatives, people that are not directly formal members of our churches? And again, that can take on a whole meaning, but how do we just practically, let's take away the eldership, but how do we practically as brothers and sisters in Christ in, within a church format uh, discipline each other. This idea of provoke one another. What, what do you mean? What, what, what is, what's the writer of Hebrews saying? Um, let's, let's not go to the other extreme where we think, okay, we're at final stage. You know, okay, we're, you know, what, what about ongoing day-to-day stuff? Because although everybody I think in here maybe has experienced the nastiness of that, the reality is every day we just rub shoulders with people and we, we think, you know what, he's not really doing it. She's not really doing it. And Will I say something? Won't I say something? If I do, what's going to get said back? They're just going to say, yeah, well, you don't do this. And so what, how do we do this gospel-centric disciple-making in just everyday life? I mean, we've got to be encouraged that that is a part of church life when we see Galatians 6 say, not you elders, but you who are spiritual. And when we see the word that's used to describe um, elder care, those who are over you and admonish you in the Lord that very same word used with admonish one another. And so clearly there is a place for this kind of um, correction, speaking to one another about sin in our lives um, that is not limited to uh, the, the role or the office of elders. So the fact that it has to happen is very clearly kind of communicated in, in God's word. Um, however, I would say that there is a particular function of discipline that is to be reserved Mm -hmm. for those who have been given authority by God, recognized by the church as elders. Um, There is this keys kind of idea and what you bind, Mm -hmm. God binds. Um, And and so I I guess in in one sense I'm saying I believe that rightly exercised church discipline, as we've been speaking about it, is one of the marks of the true church, but also um, there's going to be this layer of this level of us caring for one another, and part of that care is, I think it's the same principle as we talked about before, it's an act of love. If I see, if I see Daniel, totally apart from any eldership here, if I see Daniel sinning, it's a, it is a failure of love for me to not speak to him in love. You guys want to follow, add to that or follow up to that? I'm just I'm thinking of Hebrews 12 uh, and and the description of God's discipline of His children, and uh, I don't know that that's particularly meted out through other Christians. Um, so there's that level of discipline. I think what the Puritans spoke of the the discipline of the preaching of the word that weekly we're under the word of God, and there's a kind of discipline that's taking place there. Not that someone's yelling at us, but that as, um, even as we're hearing of the gospel again, that can be very humbling, right? To just to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. Um, so I, it, there's many different aspects. Um, in, in light of the, the question, if I was understanding it correctly about, you know, if it's official discipline from another church, then we want to honor that discipline. Um, so if someone was to come to us and say, well, that lousy church kicked me out, so I'm coming here, our first 
response is always, well, we're going to go call your lousy church because <laughs> we need to understand. Because in some cases, it could really be awful. I mean, it, just because someone says church discipline does not mean it's been biblical or godly or gospel-centered or loving or kind or right. So I just feel a responsibility to decipher that. But if it is, then we want to honor that and we want to respect that and call them to go back to their church family and make things right. I think when it comes to the sort of like people that aren't in the church or family or I think we, we do have a responsibility to to provoke each other to good works and to point those things out. I think I think we have to take it on a case by case basis in the sense of asking ourselves, you know, am, am I the person to to confront this person? You know, am I the one most invested in this relationship? to where I have the voice that they will listen to. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. to, pre to prevent a sort of, you know, Christian, you know, sort of McCarthyism where you're sort of the self-appointed person. I've been in cultures like that where um, it's very judgmental. So we have to really ask ourselves that. Hey, you know, has God called me to, to this place to talk to this person? Or is there someone else more equipped, more gifted in order to, to do these things? And maybe a way to answer or partially answer that question is, am I willing to take the first step and all of the other steps that are necessary for this to be redemptive? Which, being alongside of someone for the long haul, that, that would be a question that I would want to ask. Am I willing to do that part too? And if not, then maybe I'm not the right person or I'm not in the right frame at this point to be beginning the process. And to dig into that a little further then, with this idea of legalism and license and grace and, and making sense, so we, we don't want to be all about, you know, just swapping one set of terms for another set of terms and all this type of stuff. But when it comes to the idea, we want to get away from performancism. We want to get, you're going to earn, okay, Christ saved me, but now i got to earn it or i got to keep it. And so we've gone from a culture, I know for me, you know, suits and ties and, and all these externals to the point now, do you, do you find though, now everybody's doing whatever they want to do, all under the guise of, hey, I'm free because me and Jesus have this relationship. And don't you ask me. The moment you ask me, why are you watching that? Or why did you go there? Or why did you, no, 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 you're being judgmental. You're being a legalist. You're, you know, who are you? Back up. You know, like I'm, I'm free in Jesus. Is there, how do you guys fight through all of that? I preached the book of Romans a couple of years ago, and the most controversial part was Romans 14 and 15, <laughs> which I did not suspect. <laughs> uh, but weaker brother, stronger brother, and I think when you understand freedom, it's always freedom to love. <laughs> and that love implies self-sacrifice. So there's many things I choose not to do out of love for my brothers. And so when freedom is flaunted, that's the very thing Paul, I think, is addressing there. And, you know, he, he understood freedom. I can eat anything, but I choose not to out of love. So if I'm at a conference and a bunch of guys are swinging their beer mugs um, and saying, look at us, because now we're free, we can drink beer. And have you noticed yet? I mean, we're really free. Can I tell you about the, you know, just pounding it into the ground. If I know those guys, then I think that I would just want to ask them, is, is that really the most loving thing in this context? Um, I, would, I would say, yeah, I, I think there's a legalism we want to avoid legalism, but there's also a kind of another sneaky kind of legalism that that says I'm not as legalistic as those people. You know what I'm saying? So, I, I, Kevin DeYoung's book "Hole in Our Holiness" I think really nailed it. And the Bible does talk a lot about intentional effort at holiness. I mean, 
it's okay to work at. I mean, I mean, look at all the verbs in the New Testament about working and striving. And Paul said, I labored more than anybody else. I mean, the Holy Spirit um, trans regenerates us and gives us the ability now to to work for God. And so I, I, I think we have to be careful about um, wanting to be so not legalistic that we we fall off the other side. You know what I'm saying? And and we, we have been set free in order to, to please God. I, I always cringe when people say, you know, Jesus came to, you know, abolish the law or whatever. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. I mean, the, the law was given by God as a gift of grace, of the best way to live. Of course, we can't fulfill it because we're sinners. But, you know, to pit those two against each other, I think, is it's bad. Do you want to add that? Yes, yeah, Steve, I've heard you use the phrase an anti-legalism legalism, right? which is, uh, I think, a helpful way of thinking. I appreciated what Paul said a moment ago, taken out of Romans, that freedom is always to love. And so that's the positive statement. This is what our freedom is for. But Paul also in Galatians, you know, has this warning. Galatians 5, 13. It is for freedom you've been set free, but um, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, whenever I kind of made reference to this principle last night, um, whenever you have a category like that in your Bible, you, you can't too quickly just rush over that and say, well, I don't do that. Um, you got to stop and ask the question because it's in your Bible for a reason, right? And, and it's not the way it's said. Here's Paul, the champion of Christian freedom in the book of Galatians, and yet he feels obligated to very quickly say, but... Don't use your freedom as, as a license or as an opportunity for the flesh, which I gather to mean that it's not just, that it's not just a possibility, it's a likelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul needs to speak against it. So every one of us needs to ask the question, all right, that's in your Bible for a reason. God's addressing a reality. What might that look like for me to use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? And let's be real here. Let's define that. What what might that look like? And then take the next step of humbly asking somebody else, um, you concerned at all about this in my life? So I just take that category in, in Galatians 5.13 very seriously. There is something that looks like a freedom-using indulgence of the flesh. Uh, I, I think a great example is the idea of guardrails. Um, um, we, we live in Illinois, it's very flat, you know, so a couple of years ago, we took a vacation to um, to South Carolina, so we drove through Tennessee, North Carolina, very beautiful mountains, very steep, you know, I was glad for the guardrails on those roads, now, I mean, I think I didn't go over and worship the guardrails, you know, <laughs> but I was glad they were there, and I, I feel like, um, whatever you want to call them, standards, or, or whatever you have in your life, uh, Guardrails are good. They keep us on the path of grace. You know, they keep us on the path of intimacy. We don't worship them, but they're, they're good for us. A great example is um, filters, you know, for your, for your internet. I use Covenant Eyes. Um, I don't think using Covenant Eyes makes me righteous, but I use it because I know what kind of person I am and my temptations, and I, and I want to stay on the path of grace. I had a gentleman in my church that struggled with that, and I said, man, you should just get these filters. This would be a great tool for you. And he said, um, and his wife told me and said, no, that, that's for people with a problem. 
<laughs> and I said, you have a problem. I have a problem. It's called sin. We're susceptible to sin. We need those guardrails. We need those accountability things. That's not legalism. That's just, you know, living in, with intentional pursuit of holiness. Just to follow up, the question came in, how, how do you discern the difference between a legalist and someone who is just simply a weaker brother? Romans guy. No, no, <laughs> From the guy who preached on Romans? <laughs> I think it can really depend on the situation. Yeah. I think the exact same situation can flip on its head. So in other words, um, it really comes down to a question of what are you trusting in for your righteousness and um, your spiritual maturity, how you respond when those things are questioned, all of those factors. So I can conceive in my own mind a weaker brother being, you know, whatever... We'll use Paul's example of uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Um, in, in some ways, I can see that flipping both ways, weaker and stronger, depending on the situation and the context in which that's taking place. I don't mean it flips both ways in Romans. I just mean the, the exact thing. There's been a lot of conversation lately about millennials leaving the church. Is there different ways that we should disciple various age groups, or is relational teaching and training similar across the board? From the millennial. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm still Gen X. Millennial is supposed to be born in 1980, and I was born in 78, so I'm at the tail end of oh, Gen X. Oh, you and me both. All right, we're Gen um, Xers. There has been a, a lot of conversation uh, about millennials are leaving the church because of, you know, they're not finding Jesus there or something. I think there's a couple things to think about. One, I don't think any age group can be described in a monolithic way that they all think this way. I mean, because as soon as, you know, People say millennials are leaving the church. And then I'm saying I was at the Gospel Coalition and I saw a lot of millennials like buying really thick theology books and talking about preaching and liking the church. So who are we talking about here? You know, so I think some of the statistics are skewed. Um, the second thing is this. I don't like pitting generations against each other in the church. I think the church should be multi-generational. I don't like one generation saying, I'm going to take my ball and run if I don't get what I want here, whether it's boomers or busters or millennials or gen x or whatever clever name we come up with generational people you know we're all supposed to give toward the body you know and um we need intergenerational you know fellowship and the church that's 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 how the church should be i think that's just my view i, I think sometimes the problem is overstated i think it it's fodder for a lot of blog posts and stuff but anyways as pastors, we're called to equip the saints, Ephesians 4, and we see Jesus investing in the few. Should we give equal time to everyone in the church? <laughs> Can <that> we? <laughs> that little snicker, I think, puts you first. Uh, okay, that would kill me. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, I think, I think a case can be made that the Lord spent time, you know, with large groups, and as his ministry focused to the end, that group seemed to get smaller and smaller. I think what Paul wrote to Timothy, entrust these things to faithful men, prioritizes certain men in the church as part of our ministry, as Mike said earlier. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, live in an ivory tower and say I'm only going to spend time with men that are interested in ministry. I want to be fully there, and I really personally have to work at that, um, being fully there when I'm with people. Uh, it's just a 
I'm just talking about my own sins. Um, so uh, I, I want to be fully there when I'm talking to little Clara, who's six years old. And, you know, I was there the day she was born, and I want to be fully there when I'm uh, talking to Kathy, who's, you know, in her 50s. And I just, I want to I be there with those people, and I want to serve them, and I want to minister to them. However, um, I've got interns around this summer, and I'm spending a lot more time with them because they've expressed interest in the ministry, and I see a window of opportunity. And kind of to go back to your initial question, to me, that's the, the greatest thing is you, the, there's this huge influx now of young men that have a real interest in the gospel. So I want to strike while the iron's hot. Yeah, I would say personally that uh, as much as I believe what I said before about faith necessary to faithful gospel ministry is the entrusting to others, building into a select few, if you will. Um, I also think faithful to or, or necessary to faithful pastoring, shepherding, is you've got to be among the people. And I, I don't throw those words away in the New Testament. I think they mean something. I think they're there for a reason. And just pragmatically, I don't think you're going to be a very good preacher if you're not in touch with the lives of the people of your church. And so you don't do it just for that reason, and you don't just pick six to have a token group that you know, you're connected <laughs> with. You've you got to um, operate. This, this is why I find pastoral ministry just endlessly interesting. You've you got to exercise judgment. You've got to exercise love. Ultimately, pastoring is an act of love. And if that doesn't register for people... Um, and, and by that, I mean all of the people of the church. Now, you can't be as, can you spend that much time with everybody in your congregation? No. Um, but if there isn't a real presence among the people of the church, um, I just begin to question what pastoring, shepherding looks like. That whole image obligates me. You're very good at that. I've been to your church. Sorry to highlight you, but uh, we were walking, our families were walking down a pier somewhere. Oh, where was that? Our large dock. And I was really excited to have this time, you know, talking with Mike, and about every third person was either from the church or you knew, and it, it was a, a strong encouragement to me to watch you be all there with each one. I was getting kind of frustrated because I felt like they were, you know, impugning on my time, personally, <laughs> not really. Okay, really, I was, but... Uh, <laughs> but I just think you, you're pastoring a large congregation, more than most of us will probably see in Canada, and, uh, and yet you're, you were modeling for me and I think for the others that, you know, you have a love for those people. You knew their names, you were involved with them, and that's just so important. It was a deep encouragement to me. I know Mike doesn't give equal time to Bears fans, though, as much as he does to Green Bay Packer fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense. There are certain <laughs> standards we want to maintain. Daniel, yeah. Um, in, in the vein of uh, we're called to disciple, but, but clearly we're also called to evangelize. And this may be in light of, of maybe some things, Paul, that you had expressed this morning in your sermon. But do you lead your churches to bless the community, the greater community? Uh, if so, what is the primary reason you do? And where do we see this thing modeled or instructed uh, in, in Scripture? I guess what is our responsibility then as the church to the greater community? Obviously, it's the gospel. But what, what, does, that, what does that look like? If I could venture into that, it's kind of a, a controversial topic sometimes. I don't think it's either or. I mean, obviously, our main emphasis is gospel proclamation, discipleship, building the church. Um, but I think as we do that, it it 
renews and sets our people free to go and make a difference in the community. And I think, you know, Jeremiah's word to the exiles in Jeremiah 29 is a great example. I mean, it's very good good for us. I mean, here you've got um, people who've kicked, been kicked out of their home because of sin. They're in a place that's not theirs. They're going to they're gonna live and die there. Um, similar to us, we've been kicked out of our homeland because of sin. We're exiles. We're not home. And yet he says to build and plant and and take roots in the community. Not just that, but seek the welfare of your community and pray for it. In other words, care about your community, want your community to thrive and to grow. Um, it, it's just, to me, it's very, I think it's very clear. Now, now what I would say, like we're a small church, so you know, you read about some of these churches doing these huge things and you get very intimidated. And I just say, we well, just do what you can, you know? And, and a lot of times, like I'd found in our church, there, we have people doing things already. You know, they're volunteering at the crisis pregnancy center. They're volunteering at the homeless shelter. They're working with a, a group that helps with poverty or education or tutoring. And we just try to highlight that or empower that in any way. Or if we find opportunities where they can serve, uh, we do that. Um, so that's kind of where, where we come from. This is just going to be an expansion on Paul's uh, application from this morning. But while there's programmatic things to do once in a while, and, and given your location and sometimes just the resources that God's given you, there's programmatic things to do, whether it's a soup kitchen or whether it's tutoring at a, at a school in the neighborhood. There are those kinds of things that I think the local church can do and do in a way that brings glory to God. And, but I think prior to that, this is Paul's point this morning, you, you want to be modeling yourself and also encouraging your people to take up that that banner on a personal level. Um, so I love this reference to Jeremiah 29, but what, what, what does he say? Plant and build. In other words, enter into the economic and social life of your community, shine like lights in a dark world, um, work with your hands. I'm thinking now of Paul, Paul in Thessalonians, uh, make it your ambition to, to lead a quiet and peaceful life, working with your hands so that you might have something for yourself and to give others who need it. So there's so many opportunities. You want to make an impact in your community? Have your people have good marriages. Have your people be good workers. Speak about the gospel as it affects their vocation and then go let them loose in their jobs. Forget soup kitchens for a minute. Just go be salt and light in the world and watch the effect on your community. And then if God tells you to, by tells you, I'm not trying to be too mystical there, if, if the opportunity and the resources and the need is there for you to open a soup kitchen, good, go. Start personally, though. I think that's And, the, and I agree, because I love how, how you said, brought that out, Paul, of make sure you're reaching your neighbors before you start trying to build a, you know, a big social outreach endeavor. Because I sometimes think, every, I just find for us in the West, whenever we want to help bless our community, often... I, at least for me, I have to check my heart and say, is this really because I love those people? Are this going to look cool? And this is going to sound cool. Because when you're just doing it in your neighborhood, no, almost no, no one's going to know. You're just building relationships with people you rub shoulders with every day. You help shovel their driveway or, you know, you snow blow it or you invite them over for a barbecue or you help them. You're building a fence and you go over and help them. And you share the gospel with them, both with words and with life. And I think that if you do that consistently... Don't you find then the other stuff? 
I find if you do that, people aren't going to be like, well, what do we do now? They're, hey, did you, I saw another need, and I see another need, and I see something. Like, that stuff's just going to take off. Now imagine that as a culture in your church right. that gets multiplied. No matter how big your church is, there you are in that community, and you've got people envisioned for that kind of living in their jobs, in their homes, in their neighborhoods, and I think you're having an impact. Yeah, because my fear is the opposite effect is we're all sitting inside of our churches waiting for that, like, that light bulb to go on to give us a big idea to do something in our community when we're, like, we're all living on a street with all kinds of people that we can have an effect with. So, Yeah, I would, if I could add to that, I would say, um, you know, the people in our, commu- in our churches have different giftings and different abilities. Some might be very entrepreneurial and start some kind of community thing that's great. Some have limited resources. And, and like, if I could echo what Mike was saying, just encouraging our people to be faithful where they are in their, I think one of the things we really need to do as a church and we don't do well is to, to, to let them know how important their Monday through Friday job is. That, that you know, my, my dad was a plumber and he did great work. And that work honors God by what he does with his hands. And to be the guy at work that cares about your work and, and takes pride in it, not because he's getting paid or whatever, but just because he's doing that, um, is a testimony in and of itself and helps the community flourish. Uh, so I think, I think that, and, and like you were saying, Steve, having our people start what, with what they can do, talking to their neighbors, helping them however they need help, things like that, I think, are where it kind of starts. Can I just throw throw out one book title that I found personally very uh, revealing? I'm going to talk about it in my workshop tomorrow. Um, Hopefully I'll remember it now. Uh, It's called The Art of Neighboring by Jay Pathak. I don't know how you pronounce the name, and another author. Um, But uh, not authors I'd heard of before, but a couple of guys who just uh, tried to think through what does it really mean to love your neighbor, like actually your neighbor. And the, one of the first things they have you do is uh, write out the eight people who live closest to you, whether you're out in the country and it's the eight farms nearest you or you're you know, in, a, in an apartment. Do you know the names first and last and the children of the, people, the eight, people, eight closest people to you? And if not, why don't you begin there? I think it's a great way to end because our time is there and supper's coming up. But the, the, the way this transition, because tomorrow we want to talk about the idea of being radically ordinary which, you know, you just mentioned too, Dan, about my dad's a plumber. You know, what does it really mean when Jesus says, follow me? And I think in light of books like Radical, follow me, multiply, all these types of things, is there, is there again, an overemphasis that you're only really following Jesus if you quit your jobs, you sell everything, you go, or can you be radical being ordinary? And, and I think both these things kind of run simultaneous together, so we'll probably pick this up a bit more and again, get more of your questions. And it's helpful if you get your questions in ahead of time, because then we can give them to these guys and they can kind of process them. Uh, you know, we love the, the spontaneity of the text, but you're left to go look Most at it. Most of them. Yeah, yeah. And some even talked about my hair. Um, in some of the, I didn't want to ask the guys can, about can that. Can we spend so. some time on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too much time's already spent on that. That's exactly, that's right. So, and I love him too. <laughs> Well, on that note, thank you, men, as I, I am being held accountable. Uh, you guys have some free time. Supper, Lord willing, will be served at 530, and I believe is a hot turkey dinner with all the trimmings. 
and then Mike, it's your job to keep everybody awake uh, after they've had all that turkey. So take some time, have a break, and we'll see you guys downstairs in just a bit. 